Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates author interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and today's show is part of our Smithsonian Associates author interview series, and we have an excellent program about the true life stories of women's experiences in the Wild West. These stories are more gripping, more heart-rending, and more stirring than all the movies, novels, folk legends, and ballads that popular imagination has been able to create. Please stay tuned. You're going to love this interview. Thank you so much for listening today. I really appreciate it. And as I say, we have got a great guest today who, after reading her new book on the American West, I've been looking forward to talking to her for a while. I'll introduce her in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 682nd episode when I spoke to Sam Mullane about his WordPress and WooCommerce support work for online businesses and over age 55 entrepreneurs, all of us in the Not Old Better Show audience. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Robert Ellsberg about his new book and his friend, PBS star, Sister Wendy Beckett. Wonderful holiday and New Year's relevant shows. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out and my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. And if you leave a review, we will read it at the end of each show. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts for us. Smithsonian Associate and our guest today, successful writer, journalist, travel writer, and novelist, Katie Hickman, has written the new book, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West. Katie Hickman will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details about Katie Hickman at Smithsonian Associates. But we have Katie Hickman today to talk about her new book, her upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation about the hard-drinking hard-living poker players and prostitutes of the new boomtowns, wives and mothers traveling two and a half thousand miles across the prairies in covered wagon convoys, some of them so poor they walked the entire route. These were African-American women in search of freedom from slavery. These were Chinese sex workers sold openly on the docks of San Francisco. These were Native American women brutally displaced by the unstoppable tide of white settlers. And all were women forced to draw on huge reserves of resilience and courage in the face of tumultuous change. It has been said that all American heroes are Western heroes. And in the past, of course, almost all these heroes have been men. For all the considerable work done by historians over the last 50 years to correct that imbalance, in popular imagination, The Wild West is still a man's world. Serve up to us as entertainment, high on thrills, if short on historical accuracy. To this day, our masculine images of the West, of trappers and huntsmen, of gunslingers, outlaws and train robbers, of cowboys and gold seekers, are an indelible part of America's foundation myth. Immortalised in a thousand ballads, novels, movies and television shows, The names of men like Buffalo Bill, Wyatt Earp and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid still spring easily to our lips. But for all their enduring appeal, not one of them was more than a walk-on part in an epic story that transcends them all. 
women's experiences are at the very core of any true understanding of the reality of the American West, which is not so much a story about gunslingers and cowboys, although they play their part, but a story about one of the largest and most tumultuous mass migrations in history. The experiences of the women in this book and the part each played in the transformation of the West are so diverse that they defy any easy categorization. They have only one thing, whoever they were and wherever they came from, their decision to uproot themselves from everything they held dear and make the journey west was the defining moment of their lives. More than 800 diaries and journals written by women and describing their experiences are known to exist both published and in manuscript form. More unusual still, they range from the literary musings of the well-to-do, highly educated middle-class women to the poignant streams of consciousness of the barely literate. For those who either did not or could not write, enslaved African-Americans, for example, were forbidden by law from even attempting to do so, a wide range of other documentary evidence exists, not only in oral records, but in census and law reports, US Army records, and many thousands of newspaper and magazine articles. They do what women's records always do. They tell us what day-to-day -day life was really like. They vividly describe the practical realities of a particular time and place, sometimes in excoriating, but often in marvellous detail too. There is a freshness and a drama about their version of events, even quite ordinary ones, that is entirely undimmed by time. That, of course, is our guest today, Smithsonian associate and author Katie Hickman, reading from her new book, Bravehearted, the women of the American West. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates, author, interview series on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate, Katie Hickman. Katie Hickman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Of course, you're going to be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up right after the holidays in, in January. And uh -huh. uh, we're talking today. You're overseas. Uh, I'm here in the States. It's cold where I am. And uh, so it's nice to be inside talking to you today. But but welcome. And I hope all yes, I hope all's well for you. It certainly is. It's pretty, pretty chilly here as well. I can tell you I'm speaking to you from London, from a rather snowy London, which is unusual for us. We don't we don't usually get this cold here. So uh, anyway, it's very nice to talk to you, Paul. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. This subject is so interesting. We're going to talk to you about your new book, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West. And uh, I'm just excited to get into this. But I wonder if we can start by having you just tell us a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, in particular how you'll use Zoom to engage our audience. We're all on Zoom these days, and so maybe tell us a little bit about that. Right. I know. I know. Well, I have to say it's um, uh, yeah, it's 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 an exciting thing to do it on Zoom because you know I can do it from 
from from London and reach all of you guys over there. So uh, it's very exciting to think of you know so many people in so many different places. Um, I'm hoping that I will be able to show some of the photographs that are in my book, uh, which I'm very you know which are a very good uh, visual aid, and uh, some of them are very extraordinary. So I'm hoping to do, you know, a mixture of people being able to physically see me, perhaps with some photographs in there as well to illustrate my talk. And I I am very interested in storytelling. So a lot of my book is uh, kind of focuses in on the individual experiences of individual women, but from a very diverse range. So there are, you know, white women, obviously, but there are African-Americans, um, uh, um, Chinese women uh, who often were enslaved in, um, as came up as sex slaves in San Francisco in the early days. And also, very importantly to me, I was able to find uh, not very many, but some very important Native American w women's uh, accounts of of the westward migrations and they of course were on the receiving end of it and so their experiences are very different but very very important indeed so i'll be using individual stories but at the same time i'm trying to give a sense of the overall arch of the of these extraordinary migrations which took place over about a 40-year period in the mid in the mid 19th century uh, so that's my aim that's what i'm, that's what I'm yes well thank you for that i i think that's what i'm going to be yeah, you know, and I just think this is going to be wonderful. Again, Katie Hickman's our guest. We're talking about her new book, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West here in the United States. Perhaps there too, Katie Hickman. We are um, enjoying the West uh, in television programs like Yellowstone. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, It's such an enduring, it's incredible how enduring it, it is. I mean, I, I grew up on Westerns. You know, my father was a big Western fan. So, you know, as a little girl, I grew up, I grew up with all those old, old movies and they still, you know, in, in different ways still, you know, you still get them today. Yellowstone, I've been watching Yellowstone, uh, all sorts of, all sorts of different ones. But, you know, the, the getting back to the, actual stories of people who are actually there you know the real real life experiences of people are every bit as dramatic as anything that can be thought up you know in a novel or a movie or a, or a television series uh, and they have that particular kind of energy that comes from it being an actual lived lived experience so that's what I really that's what I really enjoyed about the about the research that I did. I did what what I did go back and watch quite a lot of westerns actually <laughs> to sort of remind myself what it was like and and uh, I, I will always enjoy a good western, but they're fantasy uh, most of them, and even the modern ones are, are fantasy pretty much. Um, so it's always good to be reminded uh, that that it was real people undergoing real adventures, you know, in real life. Well, let's talk about one of the stories in particular, and and you referred to the photos in the book. They're they're excellent. I I really enjoyed them. You also have a list of maps, which is fantastic yeah. as as a resource too. But one of the photos that I really liked um, was the the photo of uh, 
the Mormon handcarts because these just looked oh, right. so yeah. rickety and they looked like oh God, yeah. they were just not fit for travel across the country, particularly yeah. through through what was, you know, uh, uh, gorges and rivers and nothing very easily to to really navigate. So I wonder if you just tell us a story from these groups of the of the handcart yeah. companies. Well, you know, the Mormon, the great, you know, the, the the Mormons were one of the, you know, very large proportion of Mormons went west during the starting in about 1847, I think, to to follow. Joseph Smith's dictates about, um, you know, founding their city of the saints. Joseph Smith was dead by that stage. So it was Brigham Young who who carried on the, um, you know, this desideratum. And a lot of the Mormons who were coming in from abroad, because the Mormons were incredibly successful um, uh uh, what's the word, uh, pro- proselytizers, you know, they went all over Europe and a lot of them came to my country, to the United Kingdom, a lot, uh, and and made, were very successful at converting people. And one of the things that you were supposed to do as a newly converted woman was to go to the United States and to go west uh, to this new, you know, this new utopia, u- utopian city that they were going to found in Salt Lake City. So Brigham Young, realized that a lot of the people, particularly the people coming from abroad, the immigrants, you know, they're from Northern Europe and from from the UK coming from abroad, wouldn't have very much money. So they would not be able to themselves get together a wagon outfit. It was quite expensive to get a wagon outfit together. You know, it wasn't something that if you were very poor, you were able to do. So he devised this idea that people would be able to use these handcarts. And they really were, as you suggest, the most incredibly you know, they had two wheels and they were not much more than a than a kind of, you know, a barrow, really. And everybody, every every one of these, um, uh, you know, prospective emigrants had a had an amount of luggage that they personal possessions that they could bring. I think it was 17 pounds. So if you think you were going for the, the rest of your life, you were emigrating to a foreign country you had 17 pounds. That was your individual pounds in weight. Obviously, that was your individual kind of allowance. They did have wagons to take their uh, their supplies and so forth, but the individuals were only able to put this tiny little amount on the on on these handcarts. And so, uh, there's one woman who I write about in particular, who's a well a young Welsh woman who was converted, and she actually married one of the one of the Mormon elders, they were young, they were in their 20s, and they set off against huge family opposition. I always thought, rather admired them for that, because, you know, you were going, you had no, they had no idea really where they were going. They got in a ship, they traveled across to the States, they then traveled as far as Iowa City, where they waited for these handcarts to be made, and then they set off in a, in a, in a, there were a number of different expeditions, and this woman, Priscilla Merriman, Priscilla Merriman Evans, her husband was an Evans, it's a very Welsh name, uh, were in the third handcart expedition, and her husband, her husband had a wooden leg, her husband had a wooden leg, and he, and she was newly pregnant, and they, it was 1300 miles from Iowa City to Salt Lake City. And they had to walk the entire way. There was no chance of having a rest, of, of, of being, you know, carried on the, the wagons were for provisions only. 
they quite soon ran out of provisions. They didn't quite get the quite get the numbers right. So they were, you know, on very very few calories a day. And her poor, you know, Priscilla was pregnant, so that must have been very difficult for her. But her husband had this wooden leg, and of course, they had to walk. 20, 25 miles every day, and his wooden leg rubbed against, you know, rubbed against his uh, actual limb, and they they were in a really quite shocking state. But they both survived it. A lot of people didn't survive this journey. A lot of that she describes how, you know, parents had to bury their children by the side of the road, uh, and they but they couldn't stop, and they both survived this trip. I mean, she obviously lived to write this down to tell the tale. She describes ro- walking into Salt Lake City at the end of this incredible journey, where they'd walked every inch of the way, and her feet were bleeding, and her shoes—I don't think she had uh, shoes anymore. Her clothes were in rags. You know, they were absolutely rake thin, both of them. But then they were welcomed by the other Mormons who were there and, and given hospitality and taken into people's houses and, you know, given shelter and food and generally um, generally helped. And they, um, you know, lived in Salt Lake City for the rest of their, for the rest of their days. So <laughs> I think you had to be mentally very strong to do that. That's what really impresses me about these stories, you know. You have to be physically strong, but you had to be very, you know, you had to have a very good mental attitude to to even consider setting off in the first place. It's all very well if you're going west from some other place in the US, but if you're coming all the way from Denmark or Germany or Switzerland or, you know, Wales, that is a whole different thing. It must have been a bit like setting off to go to the moon or <laughs> to go to Mars, completely unknown. Um and they they are remarkable. They're, you know, they, they are they are remarkable tales. They are. There was almost this sense of desperation that I got with in some of these stories, and there was this sense too of desolation, but accomplishment that these women were achieving this. And I thought that was just a a wonderful element in in all of this. Yes, I mean, I think it was. I sometimes wondered how much choice these women had in the matter. You know, I think it tended to be like a, a family decision that they would all go together. It's very, very rare to find any single woman who who was part of these um, westward migrations. Um, it, it, it occasionally happened, but not very often. Usually, they were part of a family group, because of course, you know, the whole idea of settling. That's why the women's um, role was so important, because you couldn't um, have permanent settlement without women, without you know, without families. And there was very. I mean, I think. Probably ignorance was bliss quite a lot of the time, especially in the early in the early days when they really had very little idea of where they were going. I mean, later on, so in the in the nineteen sixties, uh, sorry, eighteen sixties, for example, there were there was a lot more information around because you know the, the trails were relatively well trodden by that by that point. But in the early days, they really don't. I don't think they really knew what they were getting into, and it was almost you know people talk about. Um, Oregon fever. I was very intrigued by that. You know, people, you know, we all know about gold fever when after gold was discovered in uh, in 1848. But Oregon fever preceded that. And you read these accounts, and there was there's one particular woman who I very much like, Ketera Belknap, she's called, and she wrote this journal from the age of about 15. And 
very kind of like a stream of consciousness, no punctuation, very, very idiosyncratic spelling, but, but it's incredibly immediate. You are absolutely there with her. Um, and she describes how her family, it was really her husband and her and her in-laws who made the decision that they were going to go to Oregon because everybody else was going. You know, they they had emigrated already to uh, um, to Iowa. They were already, you know, had spent many years building up their farm, building a house. But no, all their all their neighbours were going to Oregon, and so they kind of caught. It was like this sort of mass, uh, not exactly mass hypnosis, but you know, all their neighbours were going, so they were going to go too. And she actually writes in her diary, uh, you know, there is this, you know, Oregon fever has caught hold of everybody, and, and there's nothing talked of day and night, but you know, but Oregon and who's going to go and how are we going to get there and what are, what are we going to take uh, with us? So there was an an element these women being kind of swept into this, you know, this mass movement. Um, and, and you know, I expect that that was quite useful in a, in, a, in a way. I mean, there are also, of course, stories about women who just went mad, uh, you know, uh, went mad. It was an expression, seeing the elephant is a is a is a quite a common and quite a lot of people turned back and went back there you don't there are no figures for or that i know of for the people who returned home but i think quite a few quite a few did you know it was a huge undertaking it was to go from the missouri river which is the, the most kind of regular jumping off point all the way to oregon in the early days or california in the early days it was more than 2000 miles it was a really really long way uh, and you know the resilience that you needed mental as well as physical to to carry on with that venture it was quite something i have nothing you know that i have not, nothing but admiration for most of them actually i mean there are problems with the native americans is a very very sad tale but um these were people who were the women in particular you know they were just doing the best they could for their families so I have a lot of sympathy for that. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Katie Hickman. Katie Hickman has written the wonderful new book, just fantastic research, titled Bravehearted, The Women of the American West. It's getting great reviews. Bettany Hughes, a historian herself, has said – the book is a blazing 360-degree view of the American story. Each page is packed with gumption and grit and genius. I've got a book, a copy of the book right here in my hands. Thank you very much for sharing it with me, Katie Hickman. Oh, I've, I've refer- yes, and I just have enjoyed it so much. And and as I've, I've talked to you, uh, these stories just do jump right out at you. The other woman that I thought was so interesting, and there's also this fantastic 
picture of her too is Olive Oatman. The picture has a description attached to it as it as though it's a promotional photograph. I I wonder in all the research you found, where did you find a promotional photograph like that? And then maybe tell us the story of Olive Oatman at the same time. So Olive Oatman's story is one of the most remarkable, I think. And I was so fascinated by this young woman's story. So I should explain for people who are listening that that, uh, she's a very rather beautiful in a rather sort of solemn way, dark haired woman. And she has this very, very dramatic facial tattoo from the. Uh, In fact, she also had them on her arms, although obviously you can't see that in this photograph. But Olive um, is became famous, became a sort of like a media star, possibly one of the very first media ever states, because she was the survivor of um, she was taken captive by not one but two Native American tribes, and but was later ransomed. And so these promotional photographs were taken later on, uh, l- later on when she had stopped living with the tribe. So her, her family were Brewsterites. So they were an offshoot of the Mormon, Mormon uh, church. And they were on, her family was on its way. Uh, they were on their way to California, but by a rather unusual route, they were a lot going along the Gila Trail, which is all the way down in the south of what is now Arizona and California. And they'd all, they went in a group of people, but they all argued. And eventually this one family were left on their own. So the parents and seven children left on their own with no supplies. I mean, they were in the most shockingly awful state. And when they were in the middle of literally the middle of nowhere, a group of Yavapai uh, indigenous people came along. And the long and short of it is that her Olive's entire family, except for her, one of her sisters, were massacred by this tribe, and the two girls were taken into captivity by the Yavapai. But it had a much happier kind of ending to her story, because after about a year of being enslaved by this um, tribe of Native Americans, the two girls were bought by another tribe, the Mojave tribe, who lived not that far away, and they were traded for, I think it was a horse and three blankets and some beads. So they went to live with the Mojave and it was a completely different setup. They were treated like members of the of the tribe. They were loved. They they, you know, they were very well looked after. Marianne, very the little sister, unfortunately died of starvation because the, the a lot of that tribe died uh, for that reason. But um uh, but Olive survived, and the reason she survived is because she was so well cared for by the wife of the kind of sort of one of the one of the leaders, one of the elders of this tribe. To cut a, a much more complicated story short, it turned out that in fact one of her brothers had survived this massacre, and he had spent five years looking for his sisters to try to ransom them. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. You could make a film out of it. It's actually quite a similar story to the story of the searchers. Very, very similar. So this uh, Lorenzo, he was called, he had this five-year campaign to find his sisters, and eventually he was able to ransom Olive, and she went back to live amongst white society, but had been changed forever by this experience. And the, the reason for the promotional photographs is that there were a number of different, lo- many different versions of what actually happened to Olive Oatman, but the most um, 
the ones that kind of won won out, if you like, was was that the story was that their, their story was ghost written by this um, itinerant preacher called the Reverend Stratton, who who um, met Lorenzo and Olive when they'd long left Arizona. They they ended up in Oregon, I think. And he said, "I'll I'll write your story for you." So he ghost wrote their story. It was a massive bestseller. I mean, it sold out, you know, within weeks of being published. And then Stratton wrote another version of it. In fact, I think there were three versions, each time making the Mojave people more and more into, you know, savages, um, heathens, you know, who had tortured these girls and treated them very badly. Not true. It was absolutely not the case. They'd actually been rather well treated by, by the Mojave and... And so, so Olive Oatman is, is a very ambiguous figure because she was taken on the road by the Reverend Stratton, who saw that there was a big, um, you know, there was a lot of money to be made out of this slightly titillating story. You know, this young woman had been taken over by the tribe. Had she been raped? Had she ha- actually had a Mojave husband? You know, there was a lot of question marks over what had actually happened to her. And so Stratton kind of, you know, took advantage of this and took advantage of Olive, actually, and kind of paraded her around the country. She was very, very successfully. She had this whole huge lecture tours talking about her time amongst the Mojave, but it was the version of it that had been very much uh, hijacked by this um, this man, Reverend, Reverend Stratton. Uh, so she is this ambiguous, you know, ambiguous figure. What actually did happen to her? Was she was she really pleased to be to be ransomed? Was she actually quite happy with the Mojave? Quite a lot of evidence suggests that she was. So, so I think, it, but because her story was hijacked, uh, it, I, we will never know the, exactly what her true feelings were. And if you can, if you see the picture of her, you can, you can. Well, you you've got the picture. Unfortunately, people listening won't be able to see. But you. you there is something very melancholy about this young woman when you look at her, when you look at her photograph. I think she was probably traumatized by the, you know, these incredible cultural gear shifts that she had to go through. So it's a very, um, it's a strange and wonderful tale. It is. It, it was a, a challenging trial to, to have gone through. It was a, it was a dangerous yes. journey and many in the U.S., including Congress, felt like traveling west was just too dangerous for anyone. I wonder in your research, did you find that there was a a gender-related issue that these women faced that, you know, well, you know, and and you kind of refer to this this desperation perhaps that the the women might have faced in the traveling, but did you find too that, that the men just simply said, I'm sorry, this is just not for you. We're going to go on our own. Yes, I mean one of the things that's so striking about uh, to me was is that is that so many of the women who had set out on this on these extraordinary journeys, you know, there was a as every spring people would leave the Missouri jumping off spots, and they would you know band together and they would form companies and they would go and it was always at the same time in, in May every year, so so they travelled together with in kind of increasing numbers. And of course, a lot of these were, they were all, they were families. Almost all of them were, were, were families where, the, where women were concerned. And so 
the, the, these were married women, and they were very often pregnant and very often gave birth along the along the trail. I mean, I've got some extraordinary accounts of women giving birth in the middle of the prairies in the, you know, in a thunderstorm. Um, nobody, because there were so many taboos surrounding childbirth and pregnancy, no, I don't think anyone ever had a conversation about it. It never seemed to occur to anybody that if a woman, like Priscilla Merriman, the, the young Mormon convert who I was talking about, you know, she was very newly pregnant when she t went on this journey. It didn't occur to anybody that it might be a reason perhaps not to go <laughs> or maybe to wait till next year, you know, until the child was born. That just didn't, uh, it, that just didn't come into the equation at all. Uh, people didn't talk about it. You know, you you have these accounts from younger people, younger women remembering their experiences saying, oh, and, you know, and then that, that morning I woke up and all of a sudden I had a brand new baby sister born in the night. <laughs> no clue that this was it, this was about, about to happen. So women had a whole raft of extra problems. Um, if you know extra perils really in their way if they were if they were married and of childbearing age you know it was a long journey it was a six at least six months in the early stages when you had to walk the whole way so if you were married the chances are you might be pregnant or have a, a child along the way and you just had to do the best you can and hope that there were some other women you know in your company with you who would help you when you went into labor and of course you know, postpartum um, difficulties, you know, postpartum fevers and things like that was, was, you know, killed a lot of women along the way and a lot of, uh, you know, babies as well. So, so it was, it was full of danger and difficulty. Um, but they, but they, that was not enough. That was not a reason to stop people from going. The book is wonderful. Again, uh, we are with Katie Hickman who's written this fantastic book, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West. These women's experiences, Katie Hickman, are, are just, they're, they give us a sense of the challenges, absolutely, of the day. But I think there's still challenges that women face today. And I wonder if writing it, you can maybe share some of that history and apply it to today's challenges, because I think it is, it's a good way of looking back and applying it and learning about yes. it. Uh, yeah. yeah, very, very much so. I mean, somebody, uh, someone asked, in fact, quite quite a few people have said to me, so, you know, what, what were the qualities that a woman needed to have to be able to survive these very, very tough uh, journeys, these very extreme experiences that they had? And I think that, I think one of the things that struck me me is that is that it was the experiences that made the woman rather than the other way around I think women were amazed by the things that they were the difficulties that they were able to overcome and the hardships that they were able to survive uh, and I think that that you know I think that that's very um you know, I think about my granddaughter, my granddaughter, who, who's the dedicatee of the book, actually, thinking what life, what will life be like for her when she grows up? And she, you know, she needs to be afraid of nothing because inside her are all those qualities. You know, if if 
things get tougher. I hope they won't, but, you know, life throws things at all of us at various points in our life. And I think we are, we should trust that we, you know, women are very resilient. I mean, men are as well. Um, but, you know, young women particularly, I think about that, they are, they are probably more resilient than they think they are. So they don't need to be afraid. They need to go at life and take up challenges and, you know, do things, do physical things, physically difficult things, you know, uh, and they'll, mm-hmm. it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I took. Well, Katie Hickman, thank you so much for your time. We are going to put links up to where our audience can find out more information about you and your new book, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West, as well as your upcoming presentation at the Smithsonian Associates. It's coming up. Please check our Show notes today for inform- for more information and details about Katie Hickman's presentation at Smithsonian Associates. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for this wonderful book. Congratulations on the book. And gosh, my best to you and your family and Eva, your granddaughter. Oh. Yes, of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> my little brave hearted Eva. <laughs> It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Paul. You've been a wonderful interviewer. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Katie. I appreciate it, too. Okay. My thanks to author Katie Hickman and her new book, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West. Thanks, Katie, for reading today. Katie Hickman will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details about Katie Hickman at Smithsonian Associates. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which I am mentioning in every show because I want to bring attention to the issue of assault rifles, which are not safe in anyone's hands but the military and law enforcement. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, schools. Please, Let's work together to eliminate assault rifles, and let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast Smithsonian Associates author interview series. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week.